This is the business of sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Who wants to be the sacrificial lambs that shows up at the first big major sporting event? We're part of something much bigger than sport right now, and the health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Mike Lynch. And this is a very special edition of the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. We explore the big money issues in the world of sports. We are so excited to be speaking today with Dave McGilvery. He is the founder and president of BMSE Sports, the race director of the Boston Marathon. So much more. I have to say I was humbled and amazed just reading your bio, Dave, and that part is special. It's also special because the the Lynchy on Dave conversation that's about to unfurl here, I, <laughs> I'm here for it. I'm here for it. So thank you so much uh, for joining us from Massachusetts. Thank you for having me on, guys. So, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to chat with you, Dave, is I'm a marathon runner. I've, I've had the great pleasure of running in a number of your races, especially the Boston Marathon, over the last decade or so. And this is often a day, this Monday before Thanksgiving, where I and others have been coming off the Philadelphia Marathon, you know, one of the big fall marathons. This year has just eviscerated the racing business, kept a lot of people virtual at best. What's it like out there right now in this pandemic for the business of racing? Well, I wish I could say I'm living the dream, um, but um, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, we try to keep things in perspective. People are dying. People are sick. You know, millions of people are on unemployment and frontline medical folks are risking their lives and school children and teachers are struggling and the list goes on and on and on. And But that being said, you know, I just can't ignore what is also happening in the mass participatory and endurance industry. Um, you know, for me personally, I had 35 events lock and loaded in March. This was going to be the best year in 40 years um, my company was going to have. And um, one by one, every event went over the cliff. And, um, you know, I'm not, not trying to cry poor, but I, I do have to face the reality of what, what just happened to my business. It wiped it out. And, and, I, and I feel awful for my staff and my consultants. And, you know, we've helped manage over 1,300 events all over the world from Olympic Games to U.S. Olympic trials, Goodwill Games, 30 Boston marathons, and things were looking really bright. And, you know, we've, raised, we've helped raise hundreds of millions of dollars for worthwhile charities and, and various nonprofits putting on events. And all of a sudden, this pandemic came along and just wiped us out. Dave, for next year, what do you expect? What What is the realistic expectation? Well, the, the problem is, you know, the cliche right now, and the only thing that's certain is everything's uncertain. And, you know, I, I, our industry, this industry, you know, what we do flies right in the face of the pandemic. You know, I mean, you know, what we try to do is get as many people together as possible in a small little space, all breathing on each other and sneezing and sweating all over each other. And, you know, along comes the pandemic. And now we're told you can't do that anymore. You know, so like I said, I always thought this industry was bulletproof and nothing will take us down until this. So, 
it's really tough to anticipate, you know, what's going to what's going to happen. You know, there were thousands of events, millions of participants in the country and globally, and I'd say 90% of these events were canceled this year and are already being canceled for next year. So it has significant impact. I mean, I understand about, you know, restaurants shutting down and hotels shutting down, but guess what? When we put on a Boston Marathon, over $200 million in economic impact. When we put on a Boston Marathon or other events, you know, philanthropy, $39 million raised for hundreds of worthwhile causes, just the health and fitness benefits, all of that, the jobs that are created for event directors and timers and just all different types, sorts of people. I mean, we're the ones who fill the hotels and fill the airplanes and fill the restaurants too. And unfortunately now, since we're out of business, hopefully temporarily, um, you know, they're impacted by the fact that we're out of business. So what we've had to do over the last, six, seven, eight months is try to pivot ourselves, Um, you know, putting on virtual events. I never thought in my wildest dreams I'd ever be putting on virtual road races, but here we are. We had no choice, you know, and I've been putting on drive-in movies and renting equipment to graduations and outdoor dining for restaurants, whatever it takes to keep a pulse. That's what we've been doing just, just to get through 2021. Now your question about 2021 that's the heartbreaker. You know, uh, we could survive this year, but can we survive another one is the big question. Dave, it's uh, Lynchy here. Um, the marathon, Boston Marathon, we, that, we always call it the marathon around here, um, <laughs> was postponed till September. Then, of course, next April is postponed. But you ran a virtual Boston Marathon in September. Um, and, you know, the entry fee was obviously much lower than it is to, when you actually run the race. Uh, how much yeah. money were we able to raise during that, that virtual marathon in September? Well, you have to remember that a lot of the fundraising for the charities had been ongoing up until March when we postponed it till September. So a good chunk of what normally is raised was raised, and then things came to a grinding halt. And then as we got closer to September, and then the announcement of, of the cancellation going to virtual, you know, it slowed again, and then it picked up a little bit. But I think, you know, I, last year we raised $39 million. I think this year was like $32 million. So runners still rose to the occasion, and they still get out there, and they ran around their neighborhoods, and they still got the job done, and they still did um, a lot of goodwill by still raising money for worthwhile causes. But that being said, it wasn't as much. And what will happen going forward? I mean, the novelty of virtual was strong early on in this year, and now it's starting to peter out a little bit. You know, maybe people are like, okay, I'm tired of paying a fee and running around my neighborhood. But at the same time, you know, if that's all there is, there's no other option, then, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in 2021 if in-person events don't come back. You have to realize there are races going on in this country. New Hampshire has races going on, and Connecticut has some races, and, and other parts of the country, but they're small. They're 200, 300, 400, 500 person events. They're not the 5, 10, 20, 30,000 person events that I direct, you know, and so when are those coming back? It's all a function of two, um, two, two things. One is time, and two is space. Mm-hmm. How much 
time do you have to conduct the event and how much space do you have to conduct it within? And if you know my, you know, Boston Marathon, you know, started over 100 years ago in this little town called Hopkinton with 100 people. We have no more real estate today to do business in Hopkinton than we had 100 years ago, and we got 30,000 people versus 100. So now you take that number and you, you mitigate. So you got to spread things out and socially distance and do this, that, and the other thing. You know, it's going to take four and a half days to start the race. So we're looking at all kinds of different things, whether it has to be a field size reduction, whether it has to be rapid testing, what the status is with the vaccine. And there's so many moving parts to this. It's like your head spins. Well, and Dave, you know, obviously there's a lot invested literally and figuratively in this notion that a vaccine will at least get us close to uh, back to to where we were. I, I want to go back to, to something that you said and, and talk about maybe the, the longer arc of history when it comes to the business of, of running and fitness and cycling and, and races in general, because pandemic aside, you were part of a massive movement, I think it's mm-hmm. fair to say, a massive economic movement in many ways, where people just started investing so much more and more literally in their bodies and in fitness overall. From your perspective, having watched that, what was the catalyst for for mm-hmm. that to really happen? Two things, I think. Um, you know, it's funny, when I started my business 40 years ago, people looked at me like I had three heads. You yeah. really think you can earn a living putting on road races? I said, well, that's where you're wrong. And they said, what do you mean? I said, I'm not just putting on road races. They said, well, what are you doing? I said, you watch. I'll, t- I'll show you what I'm doing. Because the bottom line is this. You know, when the toughest part about running a marathon is signing the application, right? It's having the guts to make the commitment to do it. And then you have to earn the right to do it then by doing the work and then you tow the line you answer the gun you run the course you cross the finish line you get a medal and magic happens you go home feeling good about yourself and that's the very foundation by which we accomplish anything in our lives right and so that's what this thing is all about it's about again years ago people say so what do you do for a living i said well i'm a race director you're a what i'm a race director well what the heck do you guys do chalk mark in the road y'all go and now when people ask me, what do I do for a living? I say, I help raise the level of self-esteem and self-confidence of tens of thousands of people in America, because that's what this does. The walls of intimidation have crumbled, and people are believing in themselves. And the thing that helped this in its trajectory was philanthropy. Was philanthropy. Mike, you knew when I um, ran yep. across America in 1978 for the Jimmy yep. Fund and finished in Fenway Park. Prior to that, and I'm not saying I was the one who started this whole movement, but prior to that, no one was doing that. This was all a very competitive environment. People ran for themselves, not for anything else. I ran for a greater purpose. I just I met with Ken Coleman, voice of the Red Sox, executive director of Jimmy Fund. I saw the kids, and I knew at the time that the battle that I was about to fight by running over five and a half million footsteps across America was no way as difficult as the battle that these kids are fighting for their own life. I said, these kids are actually going to help me more than I'm probably going to help them by me raising money to help them, right? And thus took off this whole combining personal goal setting with philanthropy. And that's what really brought this thing to a whole different level. So self-esteem and philanthropy are the two things, in my opinion, that made this thing go off the charts and races selling out at record pace. Well, let's go back over 40 years. I want to go back to 1978. And you are the epitome of when one door closes, the other door opens. 
And yep. what happened is that you ran, what, over 3,400 miles. You ran from Medford, Oregon to Medford, Massachusetts. You raised $100,000 for the Jimmy Fund, which is part mm-hmm. of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. And after the 80-day trek, you come back and they fire you in your job at Boston's <laughs> Hancock Tower. Yeah. And that's what set the whole thing in motion. Can can you take us through that? Yeah, well, I, I you know, I um, I got a degree in math. You know, I was, you know, valedictorian high school at Medford and valedictorian at Merrimack College. So, you know, I had, I just had a hard work ethic. I always had to because of my upbringing in Medford, and I always wanted to be an athlete, but I was always the last one picked because of my short stature and the last one cut when I went out for team. So, you know, when I was a little kid, I mean, obviously growing up in Boston, it's so sports orientated. You know, Mike can tell you that. And I wanted to play second base at Fenway Park. But unfortunately, you know, it wasn't meant to be. So I started running. Why? No one can cut you from running. So th- that's why I combined, you know, my my hobby with my vocation and just started going in that direction. But, you know, I, I, I got a degree in math and went to work for a benefit consulting firm, asked for a three-month leave of absence. They said, okay, ran across the country, finished at Fenway Park, and all of a sudden my boss says, you got to come back to work tomorrow. I said, well, can I have a couple of days off? I just ran across the continent. And then two days later, I got a termination letter. <laughs> and as I look at that and I say, best thing that ever happened to me. Because sometimes we all, you know, we're, we get into this proverbial security rut. You know, we, we're doing something, we keep doing it, and keep doing it, but we know we should probably go in a different path, but we don't have the guts to, like, leave what we got and, and, and risk it and go somewhere else. Well, this guy forced me to do it. And like I said, it's the best thing. I opened up a running center in my hometown of Medford, and then I started putting on events to promote the store. And I realized I like putting on events more than shoes on people's feet, and thus began my, my event management business. And, you know, 1,300 events later, here I am. Well, here I am, you know, wondering <laughs> if this thing ever is going to come back. But, yeah, it's been, it's been great. So, so two valedictorians from Medford High School, Michael Bloomberg and Dave McGilvery. Yeah. You guys did. <laughs> Heard of them. There's a connection there. <laughs> and ironically, you know, you're in the Hancock building, and Hancock became the, the uh, primary sponsor of the Boston Marathon. How ironic yeah. that is. That, well, that's a good point. It wasn't then, obviously, but no. Yeah. Yeah, but so so here's my here's uh, I want to get to a turning point in the marathon. We all remember the the glory days: Bill Rogers, then Joan Benoit Samuelson, then prize money came in, and 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 a lot of the big international runners came in. At what point did this race? And, and I know what this race is today. This race is all about fundraising. It's all about people running for uh for a cause running with groups and i don't think that your average fan could tell you who won the last boston marathon that could, that was run but they could tell you they could name 10 charities off the top of their head that people were running for when did that whole thing change into just philanthropy and people running for a cause or someone that might have might might have uh, in memory of someone when did that all change yeah that was probably 35 years, almost 40 years ago with the american liver Foundation and then uh, Dana Farber, um, but but no, I mean we were a very competitive event. Obviously, in in the early years, we were the only event. We were the longest, you know, continuous running marathon in the world. And then what happened is started growing and growing. And back then, the Will Clooney's of the world and Jock Semples were saying, "Hey, wait a minute, you know, this is growing too much. We have to somehow cap it." And the way they thought to cap it was to impose qualifying standards and so they did that and what what happened 
was just the opposite of what they were trying to prevent. The qualifying standards then became the draw because it, for people, this is the Holy Grail. This is the Super Bowl, the Tour de France, the Kentucky Derby of marathoning throughout the world. And, yeah, I can't make the Olympic team, but if I can qualify for the Boston Marathon, that's a notch in my belt. So I'm going after that. That's, that's the pinnacle right there. So all of a sudden, instead of slowing down the interest, it, it, it escalated the interest. And then, you know, obviously, um, once one or two charities kind of got involved, they realized that, by virtue of being able to have that that coveted bib number, that the only other way you could get it was to qualify. Well, I can't qualify. Well, how else can I get a number? Raise money for a charity, bingo. Then all of a sudden that went off charts. And we almost built a Frankenstein in the sense that it became so popular because they're golden nuggets, of, of course. I mean, I can give you 15 bib numbers and you get 15 runners to raise $10,000 each. That's $150,000 without a lot of sweat equity. And so the fundraising component of this became, you know, it was a phenomenon in fundraising throughout the country and still remains so. And that's why we had to and still have to maintain a delicate balance between, you know, the concept of we're about the pursuit of athletic excellence, making sure we maintain that, but at the same time recognizing we can do a lot of good um, at the same time, by virtue of giving some of these numbers to worthwhile charities. So we have come up with a 80%, 20% balance, where 80% qualify and 20% in the field don't, but have to earn the right in their own way by raising money for all these different charities. And I think we just surpassed the $400 million mark this year in total fundraising since it began 30-some-odd years ago. And so, Dave, you have really described well, and, and I think everybody in this interview understands the, the gold standard that, that Boston is. And as you and I were talking about before we started this, um, there is something just incredibly special, and especially when you qualify, of standing on that line. And, and a neighbor of mine who's also a Boston qualifier um, has often described Boston as this the race you get to run because you did so well at another uh, at another race but i do wonder as we go forward mm-hmm. boston will be here i think forever the boston marathon uh the marathon is as uh lynchy rightly said do you worry that there will be a drop off though even with a vaccine and and all of this that we've sort of seen the peak and and what does that look like even in a in a healthier world knowing that there still is this commitment and and this desire for races well i i honestly felt that prior to the pandemic, and I still feel this way that we've only hit the tip of the iceberg in terms of people wanting to participate in events look at what has happened since the pandemic? You look out your front window, you see neighbors you never saw before. <laughs> they're out yeah. there jogging, they're out there walking, they're out there riding their bike. I think once we do come back, it's going to be amazing. That demand. you got to remember, we, we didn't lose business. You know, we didn't lose business. We have just been prevented, been told you can't, you can't conduct your business just yet. So it isn't like business went away. It's still out there. All around us, people want in, but we can't we can't accept them yet until we're, we're given permission. And therein lies, you know, the challenge for all of us is how and when is that all going to happen? I mean, they say there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and 
you know, for me, it's I just don't know how long the tunnel is. You know, we usually need six to nine months to plan an event. And even with a vaccine, you know, that that's probably not going to help us much for this coming spring or this coming summer, maybe the fall. You know, um, you know, our industry and our people will be last in line to get vaccinated. Of course, it's the frontliners and then, you know, those most, you know, most vulnerable and the list goes on and on and on. So there's just a lot of complications with proof of vaccination, with testing, with mitigation strategies, and just the optics of it. Even if you like said, okay, everything's good. We've got a mitigation plan. No one's good. It's very, very safe. You know, the community within which you put the event on might say, well, wait a minute, you're bringing 10,000 people to my backyard from all over the country or all over the world. You know, so it's going to be, it's not going to be simple. We will be back. You know, I've all, my, my cliche ever since 2013 and 14 is the comeback is always stronger than the setback. And I think such will be the case with our business. You know, like I said, they haven't gone away, but, you know, we just got to, we got to, we got to wait this thing out, unfortunately. Dave, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. We could talk to you all day, and we didn't even, uh, you know, have you tell us all the deep, dark secrets of uh, one Mike Lynch. So we'll have to have yeah. a part two for that. That that was an expose I was waiting for. Man. <laughs> Best no, of luck. Yeah. But before we go, you guys, one one thing. Now, Dave, I swear he clones himself during the marathon. You see him at the starting line. You see him at Heartbreak yeah. Hill. You see him at the finish line. When all is said and done, he runs yeah. the race in reverse he starts at the finish line and runs to the starting line in the pitch black all by himself wow. every single year in the marathon can you imagine that wow that's well, actually what i do just to uh, not to correct anyone but so i ran it 15 years in a row and i made a commitment to run it for the rest of my life and then got off at the job to direct it or help direct it so i was like what do i do do i run in it or run it and I said, I, I need the money, I'll take the job. So I took the job, and I'm standing at the finish line, and everyone's finishing, I'm high-fiving them, and I'm like, this is awful. I'm like, you're full of self-pity, but that's okay. We're, we, we can do that sometimes. And I tapped the state police trooper on the shoulder. I said, officer, you do me a favor. He said, what? I said, well, you drive me back to the start. Mm. He said, what, did you forget something? I said, yeah. Forgot to run. Ah. So, <laughs> I back to the start at 8 o'clock at night. I ran the whole thing, finished at 11 o'clock at night. And I've been doing it that way for the last 33 years, been dead last in my own race for the wow. last 33 years. And I don't really care. You know, I have a motto in my life. It's my game. So it's my rules. And yep. so for me, I've been able to keep my, my own personal streak and commitment alive for the last 48 years. Well, we look forward to uh, seeing you and Hopkinton in Boston on Boylston Street before too long. Uh, Thank we you. love the marathon and uh, love all that you've done. Congratulations on all of it, Dave. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. We're here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Jason Kelly. You can find me on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. And I'm Michael Barr at Big Bar Sports. And I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me at Lynchy WCVB. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports right here on Bloomberg Radio, around the world, and online, wherever you get your podcast.